that I've, I've ever had in my entire life. God allowed me to go to Australia about 10 years ago. And I went there to speak in a youth meeting that Brother Bax had been hosting for years. We didn't know each other from Adam. I, you know, some friend of his recommended me, and I flew to Australia and preached that meeting. And God began to knit our hearts together thousands of miles away in the world. In fact, uh, I, we, I, I, we had a prayer meeting this morning, and I looked at Brother Bax, and I said, uh, well, what can we, how can we pray for the services at Lighthouse? He said, hey, brother, they've been over for a day. <laughs> it's Monday there. And so we missed out on praying for Lighthouse, but they had a great day. So anyway, and he wanted me to tell you that tomorrow is good. It's all good. We're going to have tomorrow. So they're already living in it in Australia. Anyway, but we began to be close. God began to work in our lives similarly. It's almost as if God put us together so that we could journey really a same, a same journey. A lot of transitions in our lives and our, in our, in our churches and, and just our understanding of God and who he is and what worship is and, and uh, so many different things that we would talk about for hours upon hours and literally, I can say now after 10 years, hundreds of hours of conversation, iron sharpening iron. And then God's given us a lot of projects that we've just worked on together. He's come here nearly every year since then, and I've gone there nearly every year since then. We've got our youth group going there this year. We, in, nine, in like 2008, we took a missions trip with Champion there. And now in 2017, we're taking a missions trip to Australia with a group of young people in our youth department. And that's very exciting. They're going to go to the island of Vanuatu, a third world country island, get in the jungle and see what jungle life is all about, sleep in huts and... It's going to be great, and then off to uh, Sydney for a day, and then I think on to Rockhampton for uh, a youth festival there, so a tremendous thing. Chantha Chim, missionary out of our church, Chantha served on staff here for over 10 years, and now is in Singapore, is preaching Brother Bax's missions conference this year. Isn't that cool? So there's a lot of connections between the churches. Brother Bax has a message that God has given him as a result of the experience he's had in life with mental illness, with his family, his wife in particular. He's going to talk about that this morning. And I'm going to say a word about his book at the very end. But what I want you to be thinking about right now is how God could use his message and the book as he departs and leaves us, how God can continue to use that in our lives. I can tell you already, after hearing the message, God spoke to my heart in a powerful way. Before he comes, if you need a worship guide, would you raise your hand if you need one. We want everybody to have one of these today, okay? In the balcony, great. Good to see everybody here today. God bless you. Let's give Brother Bax a warm welcome as he comes. Love you, mate. Love you, mate. Well, good morning, everyone. That was a terrible good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. That's a good Aussie good morning. And uh, appreciate you uh, being out here. And thanks, Pastor Eric, for having me back again. We always have great friendship. Uh, you know, he's, he's treated me to restaurants here in the last couple of days that we don't have in Australia. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I love it. Raising Canes. Never heard of it in my life, but it was fantastic. And then the greatest restaurant that I would think is on planet Earth, and I'd, I'd even raise this to that level, Waffle House. My trip to Hot Springs is never complete without a Waffle House visit. It's amazing. I love it. It's fantastic. That's it. The all-star special. Everything. Crispy hash browns. Everything. I love the whole thing. Uh, he's talking about the young people coming to Australia. 
and Vanuatu. We got a missionary from our church, a young guy and his family in Vanuatu, absolutely incredible missionary. And uh, I was telling some of the college students in chapel on Friday, when you look at a piano, they don't have all the words we have in English in Vanuatu. They speak Bishlama. So they didn't have a word for a piano because they don't know what a piano is. So they have to create words. So to call a piano, a piano, you have to call it this. Bigum boxum, that's what it is, bigum boxum, killum white tooth, killum black tooth, im cry out loud. So that's how you say, I just played a piano. Killum, bigum boxum, killum white tooth, killum black tooth, come cry out loud. So when you go to Vanuatu and you come back, some of your young people, you're going to come back with a whole different language. And it's uh, one thing, and it's uh, interesting. If you kill something in Vanuatu, you actually didn't kill it. You just hit it. If you kill it dead, then you killed it dead. <laughs> so it's a, you've got to understand their language. Some say, I killed him. And you think, what, you killed him? No, it means you just hit him. That's all you did. So a different language. It's a great place to go. They'll have an incredible time in Vanuatu, and they'll uh, really, really enjoy it there. Well, this morning I wanted to uh, talk to you about a uh, subject which is an unusual subject that is not often talked about in churches, and it's the subject of mental illness. And it comes from a, a book my wife and I have just written, and it's a book called Poles Apart. I was talking to uh, someone in the fir- after the first service, and they say that they found it very difficult to express things when they talk about mental illness. And I said, well, the, the painting on the front of our book was by a friend of us, a friend of my wife and I, and uh, she painted a somewhat of a portrait of my wife, but couldn't finish the mouth. We said, that's absolutely perfect, because often people with mental illness cannot express what they, what's really happening in their life. So we subtitled the book, A Christian Couple Gives Bipolar a Voice. And I want to take a, a section, uh, a thought about uh, the idea of mental illness for you this morning and, and talk to you a little bit, bit about it. I want you to go to two passages of Scripture. One is in the book of Psalms, Psalm 42, and the other one is in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 and Psalm 42. There was a, a couple who lived in the outback of Australia. They were a little bit, uh, you know, not very educated couple. They didn't have much uh, equipment and things. And they lived right out in the back of the boonies, we'd call it, out back of Burke. And anyway, his wife was pregnant for the first time. Well, they had contacted a doctor and she's about to deliver the babies. And the doctor finally made it out to where they lived in the outback. And they get out there and the doctor's there and they had no electricity. So the doctor said, we need some light. And he said, well, all I've got is a lantern, a little lantern I can use. And he said, well, get the lantern and hold the lantern up. And so the the doctor's there and he's trying to get everything set up. The wife's getting ready to deliver a baby and he says, hold the lantern up, hold the lantern up. So the guy holds the lantern up and she delivers a little baby girl. And he's so excited, he says, oh, a little baby girl. And he puts the lantern down. The doctor says, no, no, hold it up. There's another one coming. So he holds the lantern up again and sure enough, she delivers a baby boy. And this fellow's getting a little bit, whoa, whoa, this is is two, two children. And he drops the lantern and he said, no, hold it up, there's another one. And so he holds the lantern up again and, and sure enough, she delivers another baby boy. And he's about to put the lantern down and the, the doctor said, don't be too quick with that, hold it up, I think there's another one. And the fellow turned around and he said, do you think it's the light that's attracting them? <laughs> and sometimes you get a little bit overwhelmed with things and you're not sure 
what, how is this all happening in life? And, and, and I say that humorously, but we jump into a subject that's a very serious subject that at times you can get so overwhelmed with, you wonder, how is this, how is this even possible? How, how is this happening? And, and in this passage here in uh, 1 Kings, you're in Psalm 42 where we'll start, but we're going to get a, a blessed opportunity through the Holy Spirit to listen into a very private moment with a prophet and God. We're going to get a chance to listen to Elijah talk with God after God had vindicated him from in three years of incredible ministry. We're going to witness this bloke doing amazing things and then all of a sudden have a massive crash and be so overwhelmed that he plummets into suicidal depression. And I, I believe Elijah had what I call an unquiet mind. And I take that from uh, Psalm 42. David writes this expression, which we're going to read three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And let's read this here in Psalm 42, verse 11, one of the accounts. David says this, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? I never knew you could talk to your soul until I read this. And David is talking to his own soul, his own mind, his own will, his own emotion, his real self. And then he makes this statement, and why art thou disquieted within me? Why is it that you're unrest within me, soul? Why is it that you're noisy within me? Why aren't you quiet? Why are you disquieted? Why do I have an unquiet soul? And then he throws out a solution in his life and he says, hope thou in God. For I'm not praising you yet, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. And David records this aspect of a disquieted soul. And I think this is what Elijah had, a disquieted mind, things that were affecting him. And a statement you can jot on your worship guide is this at times, every one of us get discouraged. We all get discouraged, but some get depressed. Uh, how many here never gets discouraged? Anyone here never been discouraged? never been discouraged. I think we've all at some point in time had discouragement, but some move on into depression and depression is, is more than mere discouragement. Uh, depression is an emotional, intense state of feeling sad, discouraged, apathetic for a, for a prolonged period. It's a sense of hopelessness, at times a sense of worthlessness. And when a person loses hope, it's, it's very, very difficult to tell that person, we'll just have faith in God. Because it's, you, it's almost near impossible to have faith in God if you have no hope. For the Bible teaches us that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So when someone's feeling hopeless, you say, well, just trust God, just have faith in God. They need hope before they can have faith. And that's why David's solution was, hope thou in God, soul, hope thou in God. But this depression is, is no respecter of persons, places, culture, generation. You find depression through the scriptures, the Apostle Paul, the Moses, Jeremiah, David himself, Elijah, who we'll read about. And depression is what I call uh, the silent killer. It's a silent killer. You wake up in the morning and you can't get away from it. You, you go to lunch with your friends and it's just nagging at you. You take your kids to a sports game and you have this constant feeling of despair. It's a, it's a morbid 
spirit of darkness. My, my wife describes it this way. She said, it's like it just washes away your personality and you're left numb. You're not left to the person who you were. Your mind gets tired from constant pulling and, and tugging. And I'm glad that Jesus understands who we are because our minds and our bodies are connected and Jesus clearly dealt with people who struggle with mental illness. In fact, if you study the ministry of Jesus, you'll find a third of Jesus' ministry was health care. He would be preaching, teaching, and healing. And he would be very, very concerned about the health of every single person. Their physical health, their mental health, their emotional health, their spiritual health. Jesus was engaged in that area. And what we find uh, is people can clearly understand various illnesses like cancer. People can understand diabetes because you can test for that. They can understand and they can see a person with a broken arm or a broken leg. And they can say, well, that person has a, has a problem or they have this issue. And they can be empathetic or sympathetic toward that person, but not so with mental illness. Many times with mental illness, you can't pull a person's brain out and test it while they're alive. You don't know what's going on. It's very symptomatic diagnosis. And there's an awful lot about mental illness that we do not know because brain medicine is not an exact science. But there is an awful lot that we do know. And here's what we do know about mental illness and mental health in your country and in my country is 45% of people, 45% of people will experience some mental health condition in their lifetime. Some for prolonged period, some for short period. 45%, we're talking almost one in, one in two. On average, one in five women, or one in five people will experience depression, of which one in four will be women and one in, four, one in six will be men. Of them, 15% will experience major depression to the point of attempting suicide, including my wife, including Elijah. Suicide in your country and in my country is the number one cause of death for people aged between 15 and 40. There are more suicides in your country than there are homicides. It's a staggering thought. And I do believe that somewhere along the line the church ought to be a place that says there is hope. That people do not need to take that route. There is an opportunity to get some help and some hope. And I understand it's a difficult, difficult topic. It's the elephant in the room at times. But one reason we wrote the book Poles Apart was to have an attempt to help break the silence, especially in Christianity, on the subject of mental illness. Because we often feel bad as a Christian uh, when we have depression. We feel as though we've let God down or we're disappointing God or we're making God look bad. And so we feel obligated to somewhat hide the fact that I have a mental health condition. Physical health, broken arm, tell everybody, pray for me, my broken arm. Tell them I have a broken mind and that's another issue. And people will say, how are you? And you say, well, I'm, I'm blessed and walk away very sad. In 1993, about 24 years ago, my wife Jenny and I had three children at the time and uh, she was homeschooling. I was involved in ministry. I was working in a law uh, situation, dealing with legal work and issues. And I came home one day from work and I noticed she just wasn't the same in her face. There was a, her demeanor was different. And I noticed there was something happening and she was very frustrated. And I said, well, just go to bed and, and sleep it off. Well, she never slept it off. I returned home to work uh, shortly thereafter 
to notice her whole disposition had changed and uh, she was completely out of character and she was a very petite uh, lady, she's about five foot, very petite and I got home that afternoon and she, she just looked at me with this look on her face of anguish and she looked at the wall in our home and she ran full pelt to the wall and just threw herself through a wall and then just slid down and was just sobbing and sobbing. What we didn't know at the time was an unwelcome visitor called bipolar disorder had entered our home. We didn't know what was happening. And we asked, started, you know, what on earth is taking place? What's wrong with me? She would go through intense lows where she was very, very depressed, lost her appetite, went down to about 60 pounds. She's down very, very low. She suffered what we called brain fog. She would go through suicidal thoughts that would just plague her mind that you're better off without me. I'm better off just leaving you and, and getting out of this world. I don't know any, any answers. Her pit was so deep. And we went to doctors. The first doctor we went to visited, uh, he said, look, I, there's, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't even want to tell you. There's nothing I can do. Here is what I suggest you do, Robert. Take your wife to the psychiatric ward and just leave her there. Well, that wasn't going to be an option for us. And so we started to pray and search and say, God, what is this? And some would say, well, it's just all in your head. Well, we didn't know at the time it was all in her head. It was issues that were taking place. Then she would go to, to manic highs. And some of those were quite humorous. And our kids remember very humorous stories. We've written several of them in the book. Some of the funny things that took place is quite transparent. Uh, you know, we would, Jenny would buy Christmas presents all through the year, but then forget about these things in her mania moments. And so we have Christmas all year long at our house because all of a sudden she'll find another present that, oh, that was for Christmas I bought last year. Uh, she would wake the kids up at four o'clock in the morning on a school day because she hasn't slept all night for two days and she's on a massive high and, and she thinks it's grandma's birthday coming and grandma loves mangoes. And she'll wake the kids up to come out and pick mangoes at four o'clock in the morning and, and the kids are going, oh, it's like this. Uh, there's unusual things and those funny things and sad things. Uh, all sorts of things took place. But finally, we found a doctor who said, your, your wife has bipolar disorder, otherwise known as manic depression, highs and lows. Now, at that point in time, I said, you know, I need to, I'm her husband, I want to find this out. And, and I was reading through Peter and the apostle Peter said, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And I, I said, you know, God, I need to find everything I can find out about my wife. I want to know her. I want to dwell with her to knowledge. I want to, what is wrong with her? How do, what can I do as a husband to help? And I went on a quest to discover that. I didn't know at the time, but my wife later said to me, she said, Rob, you know, your willingness to go and search this disease out and search out this illness, you don't know what that did, but it actually gave me an, an intense amount of security that you were willing to try to understand what was wrong with me. And I didn't know that at the time. And I would say to husbands, when, when husbands talk to me about their wives having a mental illness or an issue in their life, I tell them, find out everything you can and let her know you're trying to find this out. It'll bring great security to her that you're not judging her or dismissing her or thinking she's crazy or nuts, but you love her and want to find out what's taking place in her life from there. Now, there may be people here that battle depression. I have no idea. There may be people here who have a perpetual sadness or go through anxiety or fear, or you know others that do. But what I do know is this, that Elijah is written, he, this is written for us. God doesn't waste words. And he puts this here for us to learn some things and some insights about depression in the Christian life. So let's get our Bibles to 1 Kings 19. I'm going to dig through some things. Uh, as I think about this idea of depression, let me premise it this way. 
Depression, I think, can, uh, can be triggered from a couple of sources. One can be an outward source. An outward source this way that many times we would just describe it as circumstantial depression or situational depression, uh, basically triggered by a short-term state uh, of a traumatic change. Somebody could lose their job, someone could have a death of a loved one, could be a traumatic disappointment, and it can trigger a, a thought process that a person can think themselves into a spiral of discouragement down to depression. Well, that situational and circumstantial depression can also then have a way to think themselves out of that. Now, it may need some medication to get a person into a cognitive state ready to think clear again, but that's a situational thing. And by the way, men are seven times more likely to suffer circumstantial depression than women. Men often attribute a traumatic change to a an attack on their personality, their ego, their leadership, their position in society and their embarrassment and they trigger off quicker into a situational depression. But then there is a depression that's triggered from inward sources. And this is where we have to understand some things about the physical body. We call it clinical depression, some call it a chemical depression that is triggered in, a, in an inward way. For example, my wife has ne never thought herself into a depression. She's never sort of thought, kept thinking and thinking and thinking and now she's depressed. Nor has she ever thought herself into a mania. She's never sat there and woke up one day and said, you know what, I think I might just think myself into staying awake for three nights and doing crazy things and just having a massive manic period of life. It just, boom, hits. We often say this, that she goes to bed at night and she doesn't know whether she's going to wake up as Tigger or Eeyore. We're not sure which one she's going to be. Well, she could be Tigger today or she could be Eeyore. We're not really sure what happens from there. But if your body doesn't produce insulin naturally to break down sugars, you think nothing of it to now chemically supply what your body is not supplying. We think nothing of that. If your hypertension is not regulated and now your blood pressure is high and you're now endangering your heart, you think nothing of it to chemically supply chemicals to control your hypertension and your, and your blood pressure. But when something's not secreting in a person's brain, we tell them, well, just pray about it. There's a problem. Well, we often mistake the brain from the mind. A brain is a physical organ that can have damage to it. The mind is part of your soul. We have, to bring, we have to renew our mind. You can't renew a brain. You can medicate a brain. You can try to help a brain. You can do some things in a brain physically. If you've ever seen a dirty, infested uh, algae pool, it's all green and stuff, how do you clean it up from the murkiness? You shock it with chlorine, a chemical. Well, similarly, when a person's brain is not secreting chemicals correctly and it's foggy and it's muddy and it's murky, Often they need a chemical, serotonin, or to help with the neurotransmitters to be able to help clear up the fogginess and the murkiness in the brain so it can work correctly. It can work better and figure through that. Now, when we come to Elijah's life, here's what we don't know. We don't know whether Elijah has a chemical problem or whether it's circumstantial. My surmise is it's more circumstantial. So from his life, I think it helps us all in any situation in depression. Here's the first thing we need to jot down. When we think about depression issues, we need to recognize, and we need to recognize this, the triggers in life. 
in Elijah's life, we're not sure what, they, what his issues were, but we do know some of the triggers. Follow with me in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verses 1 down to 4. The Bible says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. That he just killed 450 of the Baal prophets. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She just set a day and time for his execution. She just said, I am going to get you killed. Verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And he came to Beersheba. Beersheba's right down the bottom of Israel, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my fathers. Suicidal depression. Very, it's very confusing to read it because if you read the previous chapters, he's on massive highs. He's praying and the rain doesn't turn up for three days. He's calling down fire from heaven. He, he does all sorts of stuff. It's an amazing experience. And now he's in a immersed, fully immersed depression where he's saying, it is enough. I've had enough. I can't take it. That's where we say things like, I just can't deal with this anymore. And I'm afraid to answer the telephone. I... I'm afraid to open another envelope. I don't want to go to work the next day. I don't know what else I'm going to face. And I've come to the point in life where I say, it is enough. What, what's taken place? I want to give you five things that happened in his life that I think were triggers that got him to this point. The first one was this, he was fatigued. He was fatigued. And he was fatigued, he's wearing himself out. He's physically exhausted. For three years, he's been on a massive spiritual battle, not sleeping, expending energy, He's on a spiritual high and now he hits a crash physically. He is exhausted. He's wiped out. And sometimes that exhaustion may very well be a trigger that triggers a person to spiral into a depression. Sometimes I see mums who are, are working full-time jobs and taking care of the house and putting dinner on the table and cutting kids all over the world and involved in school, involved in church and wondering, why am I feeling so depressed? Well, it could be you've just wore yourself out and you're physically down. We see other people studying and working long hours and sports and hobbies and involved in so many stuff and then wondering, why am I so depressed? It could simply be you're fatigued and you've cycled yourself into this and you've wore yourself out. Have you ever got yourself so tired and the next thing you're flipping out over little things? You just sort of whack, ooh, and you know, there's no staples left in the stapler. And you're at the office and there's no staples. There's no staples left! You just settle down, it's just a stapler. I mean, seriously. <laughs> or you go to the cupboard and there's no sugar left in the cupboard and you, there's no sugar in the house, I'm going to have coffee. I'm gonna, and you, you're going to, it's okay, it's just sugar. I mean, serious. Just flipping out. And many times I'm just at a physical low ebb and it spirals me. Think. Number two is this, he was fearful. He was fearful. He let his worries consume his thinking. Jezebel had threatened to kill him. And that thought started to consume him and overwhelm his faith. His focus shifted from God and started to shift to the threat. 
And if you've ever had a threat in life, you understand a threat, you often don't see the threat, but it bothers you day and night. There's a threat that you're going to lose your job. It bothers you. There's a threat that you're going to be sued. It bothers you day and night. There's a threat that someone's going to do something. It bothers you. There's a threat someone's going to leave you. It bo- it just And it plagues you. And it starts to torment your mind. You're 52. Your parent died at 53. And now that threat that maybe you'll die at 53 starts to plague your mind. Your grandparents, both of them died of cancer and you're wondering if that's going to be me. And those threats just consume you and, and build into fear. Those things are often triggers that can trigger like it did in his life. He was fearful and fled for his life. Number three, he fled. When I say fled, the Bible says at the end of verse three, he left his servant here. And here is one of the great triggers that often, you see this happen with people in depression all the time. He abandoned his closest friend. Took off. Isolated himself. I'm not going to let you in. I'm not even going to tell you what's going on. I'm going to isolate. I'm going to wall up. I'm going to push people away. When those things start to happen, they are another triggers that can trigger people into a spiral of depression. He left his closest friend. He lost his focus. He started to get very negative. He requested for himself. He got very self-absorbed. His perspective was way off and he just wanted to die. And it wasn't just a cry for help. It was at his wit's end. Now, some of you may have visited that place uh, where those thoughts have bounced around in your mind. Maybe you didn't entertain them too long. My wife told me when in her times of suicidal thoughts and negative thoughts, she would say things like this. She said, she said it's not that you can't see the light in the end of the tunnel. You just can't see the tunnel. It's just not there. There's an absence of hope. He starts to make his statement. He said, for I am not better than my father's. Well, funny, nobody was asking him if he was better than his father's. He is tormenting his own mind. His own focus was there and his self-pity had taken over and he starts tormenting himself and never becomes a a word in the vocabulary of a person who absorbs them in negative thinking. I'm never going to be any good. I'm I'm always going to be stuck in this life. My life's never going to get better. My kids are never going to come to Christ. I mean, even to the point where you say, after I ate that ice cream, I'm never going to fit into these jeans again. I mean, we get negative on everything. Everything is negative and focus is negative. Then lastly, he began to forget. He started to forget the faithfulness of God. If you look in his life, if you want to get depressed, you just need to forget God and that's exactly what many people do. He forgets one, a one-word command. The one-word command is remember. Throughout the scriptures, God will say, remember the Lord, remember his greatness, remember his goodness, remember what he has done, remember his faithfulness, to call us to continually bring back to mind the things that God has done, remember these things. What we saw in Elijah's life is he had forgotten the supernatural protection of God, the supernatural provision of God, and in, in turn, he just focused on where he was now. He was down and he forgot the faithfulness of God. But what Elijah does teach us is not just recognize the triggers, but number two, he teaches us to reach out for treatment. What I love about this in, verse, in this passage here, in verse five, and eight, 5 to 8, it says this, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. 
And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give up on us? And I love this point, and touched him. God is very personal. And said, arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights under Horeb, the mount of God. God sends an angel to represent him, to minister to Elijah in this state. And I want to show you what the angel did do, but also what the angel did not do. Here's what the angel did not do. The angel did not preach a sermon to Elijah. The angel did not lecture Elijah. The angel did not rebuke Elijah for being in his suicidal depression. The angel did not put him in a shame state and make him feel guilty. He didn't turn around and say, well, only if you had more faith, Elijah. Or only if you memorized more Bible verses, Elijah. If only you prayed more, Elijah, you wouldn't be in the state you're in. You know, why don't you stop acting like a baby, Elijah? Just suck it up, Elijah. It's all in your head, Elijah. Just get over it. Just snap out of it, Elijah. Never said any of that. Instead, he referred him to three treatments. You reach out for these treatments. One of them was a physical treatment. The physical treatment he needed right then was food and rest. Physical treatment for his physical body that would affect his mental state as well. I just love when you read the Bible how God provides food. Don't you like how God provides food? Food from heaven, food from birds, food here. You just keep writing food. I love that sort of stuff. His physical treatment was food. For others, your physical treatment might be medicine. Thank God for doctors who've invented medicine. God created the hands and the minds to invent the things that can help us. Vitamins, exercise, many things. But he also needed rest. And I think it's very important... Sometimes, have you ever gone to sleep and you've slept all night and you woke up tired? Because you've never rested. You slept, but you didn't rest. One of the most spiritual things a person can do at times is rest. And just get that rest. But he also needed mental treatment. He needed a right perspective. If you notice in verse, verse 7 there, he talks around at the end, he said, let me tell you why you need this eat and, eat, eat and rest. You need this because the journey is too great for thee. He needed someone to tell him that. He needed someone to counsel him and say, Elijah, you're thinking wrong. You think you can handle this? You can't handle it. The journey is too great for you. You need to change your thinking. You need to renew your mind on this topic. And sometimes in an issue with uh, a mental health issue, the counseling is needed, mental therapy is needed, cognitive help is needed, so they get the thinking right. He'd been thinking all wrong. When I was in high school, I was uh, into running, you wouldn't believe it now, but I was into running, and uh, I, I used to be into, involved in sprints. I love the sprints. Well, one day I decided to try up a cross country, and I thought, well, I'm going hit to the, hit the cross country thing with a sprinting mentality. So I take off in the cross country, I'm half a mile into the cross country, and I'm ahead. And I'm thinking, you ripper, this is great, I'm winning this race. And then about a mile into the cross country, my heart starts palpulating massively, it's just boom, 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 boom. By two miles into the cross country, I needed the paramedics. I'm in a mess. And my coach is saying, what have you done, Robert? This isn't a sprint. You had to pace yourself. You're, you're running this race with a total different mindset. You're running it like a sprinter instead of a person who's running this way. I had to have a complete change of thinking. That's what he's saying to Elijah. You need to change your thinking, Elijah. You're thinking this. This is not going to help you. You need to think this way. The journey's too great for thee. And sometimes we need that 
mental therapy, that counselling through help renew our minds. He goes in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I've got to tell you, your pastor took me to some great restaurants, great places to eat, but I, and I've eaten food at times, and the food is so good, you just want to shake yourself to get more down, and then so you can squeeze more in, you know? It's just, man, I've got to have more of that. But I've never eaten anything that lasted me 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, that's a good food. But I think what he's telling us is this. As the food was to Elijah's body, so too was the words he was receiving to his soul. It was food to his soul. And isn't it wonderful that at times a word spoken in due season, how good is it? It's just that word I needed. But he also needed spiritual treatment. The Bible tells us that after he had this mental, this physical treatment, the mental treatment, he then heads to a place called Horeb, the Mount of God. He goes to the Mount of God, and that's the Mount is where Moses met with God, and this is where Elijah's going to meet with God, and God's going to speak with him. So his treatment was eat, rest, listen up, and go and spend time with God. Go to the place where God is. Sadly, many people who have mental illness and depression often avoid church because they don't want to be around people, they don't want to be around crowds, or they, they feel, oh, I just don't, can't take this. One of the greatest places you need to be is in church. But you need to be around the things where you can get spiritual treatment. Physical treatment is necessary, mental treatment is necessary, but spiritual treatment is essential. When we, in our book here, one of the chapters there, we talk about 25 practical solutions to help people with depression, mental illness, and bipolar. And one of the things is this, 16 of those treatments anyone can avail themselves of. Anyone. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. They're available. But nine of those treatments are exclusive for Christians. They are exclusive for a person who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone who can access things that God himself has provided in order to be able to be a help to a person suffering with a mental illness or an affliction like that. Then lastly, let me bring this last thought to you. What Elijah teaches us in this passage don't just recognize the triggers and reach out for treatment, but also replace the lies with truth. And this is very, very important. It's, our thought life is, is crucial in discouragement, depression, uh, whether you have a, a circumstantial depression or a chemical or clinical depression, everyone has to guard their thoughts because you, you cannot use mental illness as an excuse for sin. You can't do that. Unless there is a complete diminished responsibility, you understand that situation, but you, you can't turn around, and my wife very candidly talks about the sins that she struggles with and how she has to have God to help them through, because you can't do this. You can't say, well, thou shalt not commit murder, except if you've got bipolar. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Thou shalt not lie, except if you've got depression. No, no, no. Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, unless you've got bipolar. It doesn't work that way. It's thou shalt not commit. Thou shalt not. It's blanket across everyone. But what it does tell us is a person who has a mental illness or has an affliction in that area or a thinking area are going to have a greater disposition. They're going to need God's help in that area more than someone else may. I need help in another area my wife doesn't need help in. And everyone's different. And that's why the grace of God is, is powerful for any situation that we can call upon him from there. But I want you to notice in verse 9 what takes place. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and, said, and, and he said unto him, ready? 
What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, it wasn't that God didn't know what he, what he was doing. He wanted Elijah to voice and to verbalize the lies he was believing. He wanted Elijah to verbalize it and then he would correct it. For example, I want you to look at verse 10 and tell me true or false on the things that Elijah was believing. Look at verse 10 here in this passage. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. True or false? True. He said, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Is that true? That was true in Elijah's time. Thrown down thine altars. True? True. And slain thy prophets with the sword. True. And I, even I only am left. Ah, hang on. That's false. But you believe it to be true, Elijah. When you believe a lie to be true, it'll completely mess up your thinking. And that lie has to be corrected with the truth. See, the truth will set you free. And you have to understand the truth. He goes on and says, and they seek my life to take it away. Somewhat of a truth. She should have took his life away yesterday. He's been on the run for two days and she said, tomorrow at this time you'll be dead. Well, he wasn't. So somewhat of a truth. But he has started to own more responsibility than actually his. And he's thinking, there's no one that cares for me. There's no one like me. Everyone's depending on me. I'm all alone and no one understands. He repeats what he believes again in verse 14. So he believes this lie. Verse 18, God turns around and says, let me correct your thinking. And in verse 18, he says, yet have I left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. He said, Elijah, there are 7,000 others that are still seeking me and praying to me. You are not alone. You're believing a lie. This is the truth. And what I think is interesting from here is I wonder and I imagine, I imagine how many lies we believe. And what would God say to the lies that we often believe? When someone turns around and says, oh, my marriage could, could never be great again. My marriage is dead. Well, I thought God specializes in resurrection. That's, that's God's specialty. Well, my kids are never going to come back to Christ. Why? I thought nothing's too hard for the Lord. Well, I, I, my life's never going to get any better. I'm, I'm always going to be alone the rest of my life. And I, I'm stuck in this dead-end job. I've, I've got no real ministry. And my husband's never going to come to Christ. Well, what, you, you believe that? I was told, you ought to leave your wife. Go and get yourself a life. You're young. Go and live, be, enjoy your life. She's never going to change. You're going to be stuck with that the rest of your life. Go and leave her. Really? Do, do I, should I believe that lie? She was told, you're just going to be crazy in a nutcase. Just give up. Really? Do, do you believe that lie? See, here's what we have to understand. We need to let people know this. Your illness is not your identity. And your chemistry is not your character. None of those things. You are identified, you are defined and identified by whose you are, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's when you understand, I am in Christ. This is my character. This is who I am. And when you think, what doest thou here, Robert? You need to say, you know, well, I'm always going to be depressed. I'm never, it's never going to change. And maybe God will say, hang on, that, that's actually not the truth. I have 7,000. You fill it out. 
There are people who care about you. There are believers who surround you. There is a Holy Spirit who can comfort you. You have a pastor who prays for you. That's the truth. And sometimes, like Elijah had to hear in verse 12, he had to hear that still, small voice that he has a father, a father in heaven who loves him. Jordan sang that incredible song, Abba, Father. Well, what a great song. And sometimes we need to recognize that we have a father who speaks to us. And, and the thought you can finish up with is this, that sometimes when we're at our lowest, God seems to speak the softest. It's just that word, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll never forsake you. It could be a word, it could be a phrase, it could be a line in a song. I remember several years back there, I had a, a man who I led to Christ and his name was Les and Les had a, uh, a job. He was a high-class printer and in those days, his number one job to print was pornography and on really high-gloss printing. And that was his job. And uh, he got saved and um, he'd been involved in many, many things and he got, he got saved and got out of that printing industry and got a job working just in a newspaper company and was printing newspapers. He took a massive pay cut, all those things. And I remember one time we were sitting down and we were praying and praying together and he had some issues. And I said, well, Les, why don't you pray? And so Les just bowed his head and he just said, uh, Father, he couldn't say anything more. He looked up and he said, he said, Robert, I, I, I don't know what else to say. I said, you've said everything. See, because we cry out, Abba, Father, Papa. And God hears that cry. God hears that. My wife would have songs that she would hear scriptures that she would read and it was like Papa crying out to her and she just sometimes couldn't say anything but Father she'd hear that song he knows my name he knows every tear and just that to know that makes all the difference that I have a heavenly Father I, I think about Elijah's life and how amazing the turnaround was because God, God actually brought a whole new purpose to his life through this and in one way Jezebel was a blessing it ushered him into his new ministry so he moved from being a prophet to becoming an anointer he'd move on in the passage to anoint kings to anoint more prophets a whole new direction of ministry and my wife Jenny has said that her illness has really become a gift. She's looked at her life and oh, we've had some tragedies, some terrible things. She's gone through electric shock treatment, which was horrific several times. Uh, several parts of her mind, as memory is just not there. She doesn't remember things about our kids. She doesn't remember things about us. Uh, we, we write about all this and talk about, there's photos we have in our book of a trip we took on a mission trip to visit our missionary in Spain. She has no recollection. Chanta's coming to visit us. We, Jenny and I visited Chanta. She doesn't even know who he is. 
but she's happy. And she just says, well, that's who I am right now. And God's given me a great opportunity to minister to so many people. We're starting a mental health support group for our city. We can try to reach out to others who are in an affliction like this and family members. So she sees it as a gift. She says, thank you, God, for how you've designed me. You, you make no mistakes. This, this is who I am. And I think as a church, the church ought to be the safest place on planet Earth for a person with a mental illness to come to. Say, I, I need help. And we ought to say, we can help you get some hope. Because there's a person who's got a beautiful name. His name is Jesus. It's a powerful name. And to help remove stigma, that's one of the reasons we wrote this. I'll tell you how we can all help remove the stigma. Are you ready? It starts by this, by realizing we're all broken. And my brokenness, my brokenness is a far better bridge to people than my pretend wholeness ever was. And we've learned that. We talk about this illness, talk about things, and people say, aren't you embarrassed? And some will say, thank you for sharing, thank you for talking about it. Jenny's illness has helped me become and try to seek to become a far better husband. For many years, in the early years of her illness, I got very bitter, bitter against God, bitter against her. And I would say, Jenny, I think, you know, why are you doing this to us? What, you're ruining our ministry, you ruin our lives, our kids. And, what, why you do, and I would get so bitter. And then God spoke to me and the Holy Spirit took a verse of scripture out of the book of Colossians. And it says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And I've got to tell you, it was like a dagger just smote me in the heart. And I had to repent of my selfishness. I had to repent of my self-righteousness and my arrogance and realize, God, you've given my, this is my wife. You've given her to me to minister to and to love. And I had to spin my whole life around and realize, God, this is, this is us. And I've been such a selfish, selfish and I've got to tell you, God changed that, changed that and, and it's just been a, an amazing thing. She's now my hero. I'll tell you why she's my hero. Because I've defined a hero this way. A hero is someone who's succeeded while struggling with the same problems others have used as an excuse for failure. And she just said, I'm pushing through this. And what I love about knowing that we have a God who's our Abba Father, we also know that Jesus is our wounded healer. And what isn't healed on earth will be in heaven. It will be in heaven. You know the strange thing? If you go back to the beginning of Elijah's story, the thing that he was scared of, the thing that overwhelmed him, the thing that triggered him into his state, that his biggest fear was that he was going to be killed. And then he requested for himself to die. His fear was death. Anyone ever know what happened to Elijah? He never died. God took him up in a fiery chariot. The thing that he feared greatest in life never happened to him. We have a great God. We have a great Savior. His name is Jesus.
Let's bow our heads in prayer today.